With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. You're listening to Bruce Torres on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. This is World Stage, exposing the tyrannies and exploring our power with deep dives into history, current events, dangerous trends, and the nature of reality. Before I introduce my guest, I want to read a little bit about a new Substack by Alex Craner. Substack, Alex Craner, K R A I. N-E-R, dated January 17th, 24. Clear and present danger. Wars incubate fascism. The war drums in Europe and in the Middle East are growing ever louder, and it is clear that the imperial oligarchy desperately needs a big war to shore up their power base and to divert the anger of their populations against an external enemy. In Germany where the largest protests in history are ongoing and even gaining in size, we suddenly have a leak of secret documents out of the German Defense Ministry that suggest that Vladimir Putin is preparing to attack NATO countries in 2025 and show, step by step, how Russia will escalate the conflict to an all-out war over the next 18 months. I can't help but sound sarcastic. Now, for all I know, I'm going to click and discover that that's a legitimate uh, leak, suggesting that Putin is planning to do that. But in my experience, that stinks as just something to agitate our fear and justify along the lines of this substack by Alex Craner at alexcraner.substack.com. Check him out. And if you start reading and loving what he posts, let him know because I find him invaluable as an observer, reporter, and commentator on many, many important things. With me this hour is Jeremy R. Hammond, an independent journalist and author who exposes propaganda that serves to promote criminal government policies. He focuses primarily on U.S. foreign policy, economic freedom, and health freedom. His books include Obstacle to Peace, the U.S. role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the war on informed consent, the persecution of Dr. Paul Thomas by the Oregon Medical Board, and the New York Times versus Robert F. Kennedy Jr., how the mainstream media spread vaccine misinformation. And you can follow him at jeremyrhammond.com. Jeremy, thank you for coming back to the show. Good to see you. How are you today? Doing all right. Thanks for having me on again. Great to speak with you. Well, likewise. And I can't thank you enough for your, your decades of work and especially your knowledge, expertise, and courage in bringing what you have discovered about the Israeli and Palestinian history for the last 70 years and many, many you know further back that you thoroughly documented back to the origins as far as it could affect us here in the West and especially this winter after the October 7th event that is has led to what I, as I've learned from you and a few others, is an abominable genocide overreaction in collusion with my country, our country, the United States of America. I suppose it would be valuable 
for folks seeing and hearing you for the very first time. Who is this Jeremy Hammond and why is Bruce so excited about talking with him? If you would review for me your personal history of studying Israeli-Palestinian conflict and how what you have found is contradictory to the mainstream version of the situation that we have been force-fed at least my entire lifetime yeah sure so i really got started doing you know independent research and, and writing and eventually you know what i came to accept as being described as journalism um even though for me it's just i i research and i just like to share knowledge and that's what i do um, so call me an independent journalist for that. Um, so it really started after 9-11 and, you know, I was kind of naive enough to ask myself at that point in time, you know, why would people do this? And being unsatisfied with the answer from the George W. Bush administration that it's because they hate our freedoms, I started researching U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, um, which of course led naturally to a, a, an intense focus on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, and so that became a really intense focus of my research. Um, you know, pretty early on, but um, especially from 2008 onward, um, 2008 being uh, when Operation Cast Lead occurred. <clears throat> I was following that uh, uh, military assault on Gaza very, very closely. Um, it's it's extensively documented in my 2016 book, Obstacle to Peace. Um, it's actually a major focus of that book is Israel's uh, military operation then. Um, and so, yeah, it just kind of became a, a natural focus due to what really kicked off my my this journey of mine on this path of independent journalism, which was which was the events of 9-11. <clears throat> and also having, you know, ha having a, a Christian background, I was brought up in a Christian family and just kind of having that background. Um, of course, that also kind of led me to naturally focus on the on the Israel-Palestine conflict as well. So it was kind of a, a convergence of different backgrounds and interests. Did you, did you find, I, I've, I, I've read a lot of you. I read a lot of everybody. So forgive me. I don't have the answer to the next question at the top of my mind. What did you find about, uh, who did nine 11 just as the context for our continuing conversation about Israel? Yeah, so there's a lot of people that describe it as a false flag, and they don't believe that there were hijackers. In fact, there's people who don't even believe that planes were flown into towers and things like this. Um, you know, I'm convinced that Al-Qaeda al was involved. It was a terrorist attack. Uh, Osama bin Laden was involved. Um, however, it seems clear to me that, well, number one, we know there was foreknowledge, and they lied about that. And that was one of the very first things that I discovered in my research was that, you know, they claimed that they had no idea something like this could happen, had no idea that terrorists could hijack planes and, and fly them into the towers. Nobody had ever conceived a, a, such a thing. And that was all a bunch of nonsense and lies. And of course, they, they, they did have foreknowledge of the attacks. In fact, the month before, Bush had a, a, an intelligence brief on his desk saying Osama bin Laden determined to attack the United States. And the, of course, the Twin Towers were an obvious target because they'd already been attacked back in, what was it, 1993, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, so there, we were lied to, you know, and then... Um, to me, it, it's pretty clear that there was foreign knowledge, and I, I believe that the attacks were essentially facilitated um, as a very high-level intelligence operation. Um, and to me, a, a real clear smoking gun of this is uh, is the collapse of World Trade Center 7, um, which occurred, uh, you know, Trade Center 7 was not hit by, by a plane. 
and it mm-hmm. collapsed on the morning uh, of, or actually in the afternoon of, of 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, at free fall acceleration in NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology initially tried to deny this in, in its draft report of its investigation. Um, but then it was called out, you know, in public comments on the draft. And in its final draft, it acknowledged that, yes, the, the collapse occurred at free fall acceleration. So free fall acceleration means that all of the building's potential energy was converted to kinetic energy, which means that there was no energy available to do the work of buckling columns as required by NIST's uh, fire-induced collapse hypothesis. And so NIST's final report is, is <clears throat> it's a document, it's, it's scientific fraud. And that's one example, um, but it's riddled with scientific fraud. And I've, I've done extensive research and, and scoured over that at the time. And so to me, to watch the US government um, perpetrate scientific fraud to try to cover up how this building came down, it's just an indication to me of, um, of something was going on and we have not been told the truth and it seems clear to me that given the foreknowledge given the the uh the circum and there's many 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 other circumstances which we could talk about for for hours and it's been quite some time since i've reviewed a lot of this material Mm -hmm. um but a lot of it's pretty clear in my head still um Mm -hmm. but yeah that's so that's my position that's my view uh and i know a lot of people have different different opinions about this um but that's that's my point of view on 9-11 I'm I'm persuaded it was an inside job. I really studied it for years before I wrote my book, God Schooled 9-11 and JFK, The Lies That Are Killing Us and The Truth That Sets Us Free. I encourage people to read all about my book at brucethetaurus.com and also reference the work of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and Richard Gage to go into not only Building 7, as you just well did, but the towers and the Pentagon, and it's a it's an absolutely proven case as far as I'm concerned and many, many thousands of others that that was a inside job to the extent that those buildings were all demolished and controlled uh, demolitions. And like you also mm-hmm. said, we could talk for hours about every part of the official story falls apart when it's when it's tugged out, tugged at. So thank you for that. That, that yeah, if I might add one thing to that, <laughs> one comment, sure. just because, you know, people think of, the, you know, I've been called as conspiracy theorists for saying that, you know, free, WT7 came down in a controlled demolition. But to me, this is not a conspiracy theory. It's just, it's just, you know, you can just look at it scientifically, look at it through the, in terms of laws of physics and, and, and science, <clears throat> and you can just read the this report for yourself and think about it critically. And it's so it's, it's, if the conclusion that, that, you know, NIST's, uh, NIST perpetrated scientific fraud, clear scientific fraud to try to cover up what actually happened. I mean, there's two hypotheses. And if NIST's hypothesis is falsifiable, well, that leaves one hypothesis. So I'm just approaching it like scientifically. This is not a conspiracy theory of any kind. It's just that's the conclusion. And, you know, there's the famous quote from Sherlock Holmes or whatever. Um, what was it? You know, if you rule out um, the impossible, whatever's whatever remains, however implausible, must be the truth, and, and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what I've done with my approach to nine eleven. So I, I don't don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist in any way. I'm just I'm just fo- you know following the facts to to logical conclusions. Yes, and that puts you know me and everyone else who contemplates it on high alert. Gee, how much lies or truth am I getting from my government or from the media? Right. Now we fast forward. <laughs> Uh well, I want well, to. Then it goes into with... Iraq. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Abs- what about Iraq? 
So, it, it, you know, that was another thing early on as I was investigating and just doing research for myself uh, into the events of 9-11. And then by the end of 2002, it was very clear to me how they were going to utilize the events of 9-11 as a pretext to invade Iraq. And so I started speaking out. And this is really kind of how I got started. I, I started um, speaking out against the, the the coming war and saying, and I was, so I was saying the U.S. government is lying. There's no evidence Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. There's no evidence that Iraq has operative ties to Al-Qaeda. And so it was very clear that yet again, they were just lying to us um, in order to start a war yeah. for regime change. And so, um, you know, that was one of the earliest focuses of my work was, was the war in Iraq and exposing the lies. And then, of course, they had the whole myth of an intelligence failure which was yet another, you know, um, um, you know, propaganda campaign targeting the disinformation campaign targeting the American people to, to whitewash the original disinformation information campaign of lies and deceptions. <clears throat> so there was no intelligence failure. It was a deliberate campaign of lying, lies and deceptions. Um, and so which was successful in, in manufacturing consent for the, the illegal war of aggression against Iraq. Uh, yes, at a, at a breathtaking level. Those were unbelievable years personally for me. It was in 2004, someone said, Bruce, you got to look into 9-11. The official story is nonsense. And I did and found uh, not only the researchers and researchers and authors publishing what they were finding about what really happened on 9-11, as you say, also the lead up to the Iraq invasion in 2003. And then the year after year after year of lies about progress, the massive amount of Money going into that, that just exposes the military industrial complex here in America, you know, for, for what it definitely is. And then you, it sounds like at that, by the late 2000s, were you prim pri primarily researching the Israeli-Palestinian situation? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I, I, it was definitely the, the biggest focus of my work by that time. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. And then I shifted again in, in two, after 2012. My son was born in 2012. So having become a father, my, my priorities shifted. Uh, and I, I kind of shifted my focus to uh, domestic policies and, and, and public health policies. And I focused a lot on the vaccine issue. Um, and so I kind of set aside foreign policy for quite a number of years. But I'm back at it now as, as of October 7th. It's been my back to being my primary focus just to the urgency um, and intensity of the situation. Um, and the urgency for people to get good information about that conflict. Um, because once again, you have a situation yeah. where the U.S. government is supporting uh, crimes against humanity um, and not in my name. So I'm going to do what I can to speak out against this and 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 try to uh, educate people and, 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 and make them aware of how they're being lied to by the government. Jeremy, on the other side of this break we're going to take, I'm going to ask you, how blown has your mind been that right now, not only vaccines, which is something you personally started looking into after 2012, couldn't be a bigger, more horrific story in crime against humanity. Bruce's words, I'll ask yours on the other side of this very important information from today's news talk, TNT. TNT's Mark Morano. This just in, we have a new way that's proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways, streets, and other public areas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this appears to be the most effective way. We have a uh, we have a field shot, a correspondent on the scene. Let's go to clip four and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute. 
to see protests shut down. But obviously, when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that, you need to be dealt with. I thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. Chief Division Counsel and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject to be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at. And then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. The Net Zero Con will leave millions of citizens dependent on state handouts. It isn't a theory. It's an agenda. There is no climate emergency. On air 24-7. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And this is Bruce Tatoris on World Stage. With me is Jeremy R. Hammond, and his site is jeremyrhammond.com. And Jeremy, a couple of your recent articles there, uh, you posted a, a summary of a recent interview yes what's happening in gaza is a genocide another recent article is uh, another recount of an interview the propaganda function of the mainstream media i'm going to mention your site a lot and encourage people throughout the hour after the show to go to your site and subscribe the enormity of the reality of what israel is how it was created how the united states aids and abets its abuse of the Palestinian uh, Arabs and Muslims, I'll say Palestinians, because I've learned from you the distinction that, you know, in the 30s and 40s, up to the 30s and 40s, there were Palestinian Jews, Palestinian Arabs, Palestinian Muslims, Palestinian uh, Christians. So I wanted to ask you about the, di the, dis the distinction the disparity, the contradiction between what the mainstream is selling us, our government and the media, about uh, what's going on over there, I guess the historic reality, and some kind of summary, as big or as short as you would like, Jeremy, because that drives me nuts being lied to, you know, by, by official dumbs. So um, talk into that, if you would, please. Sure. One of the fundamental problems and why this conflict persists and seems so intractable <clears throat> is because most of what people think they know about it isn't true. So we have an entire history, an entire narrative of the history of the conflict that is essentially uh, Zionist propaganda 
it's the Zionist propaganda version of history, because, of course, Western media organizations report on this issue through the lens of Western governments and Western policies. And, of course, Western governments, uh, yeah, particularly focusing on the UK and the United States, have always supported uh, the Zionist project from its start. Um, and so you have kind of this, this bias and, and this confirmation bias. Um, when you read mainstream media and essentially what we get is kind of like it's it's not such an extreme Zionist propaganda version as like maybe we would get from the Israeli government itself or from the IDF. Um, mm. But it, it's essentially got all the key talking points of the, the Zionist propaganda narrative. So from the, the from the mm. mandate period to today, you know, we're told that the root cause of the, of the conflict is inherent Arab hatred of Jews looking at, you know, Arab um, riots during the mandate period in the 20s, um, violence against Jews. This just proves that the, the, the Arabs just refused to, to live side by side with Jews as neighbors. And they've repeatedly rejected offers of a state in 1937. There was the Peel Commission uh, 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 partition proposal, Arabs, recalcitrant Arabs rejected it, the 1947 UN partition plan, Arabs rejected it just because they can't stand the thought of Jews having a, a state of their own. Um, and then, you know, up through the 67 war, and then, uh, you know, from the from the from the 90s on the the so-called peace process we're told that israel has offered these incredible concessions and the, and the palestinians have rejected these concessions all of this all of this is just complete propaganda uh ahistorical nonsense so going back to the mandate era you had a belligerent occupation enforced by the british after world war one with a specific purpose of preventing the palestinians from exercising their right to self-determination despite promises to the arabs during the war that uh, the, that the British government was supportive of the Arabs um, obtaining their independence from the Ottomans. Jeremy, and also there are folks listening and watching who might not be very clear what you mean by Zionism and Zionist, sure. you know, uh, project. Def just define that simply, if you could. Would so when I when I'm using the term, I'm, I'm referring to modern political Zionism, which is a movement that arose in the late 1800s, um, and it was uh, it was the movement to uh, in the words of Lord uh, Walter uh, Rothschild, Lionel Walter Rothschild, who was the recipient of the Balfour Declaration letter, um, he actually that, that the, the Balfour Declaration was originally drafted by Rothschild, and so in his words, the, you know, the goal was to quote reconstitute the uh, Palestine into a, a, a Jewish national home, which was a Jewish national home being a euphemism for a Jewish state. Um, so this was what Zionism was. It was about um, it reconstituting Palestine, Palestine into a demographically Jewish state. Um, and so the British government facilitated the Zionist project through force of arms by enforcing this belligerent occupation. So, um, and there, there's different meanings of Zionism, but when I when I use the word Zionism, mm -hmm. this is what I'm talking about: modern political Zionism. Right, right. And, and it was and a is... secular movement. Is a mm -hmm. secular movement and initially opposed by by Orthodox Jews and and others, including um, Indigenous Jews living in Palestine. Um, because they saw it as, as they saw it as her heretical um, and an act of defiance by men against God and refusing to um, you know because Orthodox Jews at the time believed that 
Um, they they need to do await the Messiah that they were you know they were exiled from the land of Israel because of their sins and their and their violation of the covenant with God. If you read the Tanakh, the Old Testament, which Christians refer to as the Old Testament, um, so it was actually opposed initially, <laughs> widely by Jews themselves, uh, especially the Orthodox community. And to this day, there are Orthodox Jews who are anti-Zionist. So we must was it opposed? Was it was it opposed primarily by? The, the very small number of Jews in the Palestine, Palestine area in the decades before the 40s, was it mostly opposed and resisted by those Jews? Uh, well, many Jews in Europe opposed it, yeah. So in addition yeah, to, you know, Jews living in Palestine, uh, because, you know, the, the Jews living there in Palestine, because throughout, you know, throughout the 1800s earlier, um, Palestine was a refuge. You know, we hear that there, it's just like this, this inherent inability of Jews and Arabs to get along, but that's just not true. We can look, um, in fact, the British government, if you look at the the, the acts of violence in 1920, 1921, the Hebron massacre in 1929, the British government itself investigated those those incidents of violence. And th their conclusion was that the, 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 the root cause was not some kind of inherent anti-Semitism or Arab mm -hmm. hatred of Jews. They said, no, on the mm -hmm. contrary, it was the increasing um, sense among the Arabs that the Zionists wished to displace them and deny them their, their rights and their property rights and their political rights and deny them their own uh, right to self-determination. And so this was the mm -hmm. root cause of the conflict. And before that, Arabs and Jews had gotten along as neighbors in Palestine. Palestine historically had been a, a place of refuge for Jews, particularly mm -hmm. in contrast to the rampant anti-Semitism in Europe. Mm -hmm. And the anti-Semitism is a factor in why um, what European governments, Western governments supported the Zionist project. Um, there were a number of factors for the Balfour Declaration. One was to obtain uh, Jewish support for the war effort, including the the, the banking. You know, uh, Rothschild was, of course, the uh, member of the, the famous banking family. Um, mm -hmm. So they needed they needed Jewish support for the war effort. Um, mm -hmm. Another reason was anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, European countries were happy for for Jews to leave Europe and and go to Palestine. So mm -hmm. that was that was a factor. But it's also, and you know, what I've learned probably primarily from you over the last year is that the United States has has backed and supported. The Zionists who created Israel declared the existence of Israel in 1948 at the complete suppression of the rights of the native Palestinians to have any say civically, politically, and, and have any rights to their property negotiated fairly. Um, do a decent summary of how Israel emerged and how they claim to have a legal authority to do that, and that is really not the case. Yes, yes, very good question. Um, so uh, this goes back to the, the 37 Peel Commission report. And so we're told that, you know, this was like a first instance of, of the um, the Palestinians rejecting, you know, some kind of uh, reasonable partition of, of the land into a Jewish and, a, and, a, and an Arab state. Um, but if you look at what the Peel Commission actually recommended, they proposed, um, first of all, that, that they were going to give a certain amount of the land to the Jews, even though um, Jews didn't own that much land. <laughs> Arabs owned more land. There was, a, and there was a greater Arab population in the proposed area of the Jewish state, so that that it would require, according to the British Peel Commission report, what they refer to as a compulsory transfer. In other words, ethnic cleansing. And so, when mm -hmm. the British put rubber stamped the idea of ethnically cleansing Palestine in order to create a Jewish state, the Zionist mm -hmm. leadership 
went on record in favor of what they called transfer. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, prior to that, there had been whisperings about it. You know, they had been they had talked about it in terms of, you know, well, we can't really establish a demographically Jewish state unless we get rid of the Arabs. Um, but but from that right. point on, from 1937 on, there was just open um, open calls and, and acknowledgement that that was a preferred solution was for the Arabs to go. And, and so, Jeremy, at the risk of uh, what I want to do is talk about late 40s and since then, how right. Israel really has been imposed on that area by force of arms. And once people understand that, and they can go to your site and they can go to your books and get that full documentation. Let's talk about that for just a couple of minutes. And yes. we're going to take a break. And then I want to devote the rest of the show to talking about asking your, you know, your thoughts about the current situation, because it's, it's literally on fire and it's very, very urgent. But it's very important for a couple of minutes to talk about how Israel was created by force of arms, and it's been a brutally imposed uh, situation since 1948. Yeah, so this is another myth that the UN created Israel, that Israel was established through some kind of legitimate political process. This is completely false. Uh, the UN, that refers to the UN partition plan, which was 1947. The UN General Assembly adopted the recommendation um, uh, that, the, that there be a partition into separate Jewish and Arab states um, that was forwarded to the Security Council where it died because the UN recognized that it had no authority to partition Palestine against the will of the majority of its inhabitants. Um, so that's nonsense. And also you, Resolution 181, neither partitioned Palestine nor conferred any legal authority to the Zionist leadership for their unilateral declaration of independence on May 14th, 1948, by which time 250,000 or so Arabs had already been ethnically cleansed from their homes. Um, and, and then by the end of the war that, that ensued because the Arab, the neighboring Arab states intervened into Palestine to try to prevent the ethnic cleansing operations, um, didn't do very well at, at succeeding in that Jordan managed to hang on to the West Bank, Egypt managed to hang on to the area we call the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. um, and by the end, about 750,000 Arabs, most of the Arab population had been ethnically cleansed from their homes, never allowed to return. This is the origin of the uh, refugee problem that exists to this day. 70% of, of uh, Palestinians living in Gaza today are um, refugees or their descendants from the 1948 uh, ethnic cleansing, which Arabs refer to as the Nakba, Al-Nakba, which means the catastrophe. Um, and, so and, that is and, how Israel and, came into existence. Israel right. came into being through the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Yeah, with the with the support of the United States, or at least yes. its silent, you know, acquiescence, if not actual support but then you look at how we've we've built them up uh militarily and uh vote with them against many many things that could have allowed or acknowledged the rights of palestinians it's absolutely mind-blowing it's mind-blowing hypocrisy for the united states of america and our professed ideals to back this project at the complete mutilation of the rights of people who you know, were there, the Palestinians. Um, talk about that for a couple of minutes. The, the major events of like, I guess the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all in just, you know, two or three minutes, Jeremy, because then we're going to take a break. So a nice telescoped uh, history, please. Yeah, so the next really huge watershed event was in the 1967 war, which began on the morning of June 5th with a surprise Israeli attack on the Egyptian, uh, on Egypt, destroying most of its air force while its planes were still on the ground. 
Um, that w- it was called the Six Day War because Israel defeated the Arab, combined Arab armies so so rapidly, um, and that was the war during which um, Israel occupied the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, in addition to the Syrian Golan Heights and the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. Um, so Israel has maintained this military occupation for fifty six years, uh, military you know belligerent occupation of, of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip against all international so, law and findings, right? Yeah. Right. Well, so after the after the sixty seven war, the UN Security Council passed Resolution two four two, which um, emphasizing the principle uh, of international law that it's inadmissible to acquire territory by war. Called on Israel to withdraw to the pre sixty seven lines, which is the same as the nineteen forty nine armistice line, sometimes called the Green Line. Um, so Israel has remained in violation of that resolution ever since. Um, and so in the entire peace process, right, I mean, to try to quickly get to this, um, the peace process is the means by which Israel and its, uh, you know, the U.S.-led peace process is the means by which Israel and its superpower benefactor have always blocked implementation of the two-state solution because the two-state solution um, is is uh, premised on the, the applicability of international law to the conflict. And Resolution 242 serves as kind of a basis for that. Um, whereas Israel and the U.S. have a different framework where they reject the applicability of international law to the conflict. And so their their position is that the, the people living under foreign military occupation must, uh, must negotiate with the occupying power over how much of their own land they, they can keep and live in and maybe exercise some kind of limited autonomy over at some point in the future, while Israel goes on prejudicing the outcomes of said negotiations through its continued expansion of its illegal settlement regime. So that's the peace process. Um, and so it's the means by which Israel has uh, always blocked implementation of, of the, the two-state solution. So they talk about a two-state solution, but it's completely different from the two-state solution premised on the uh, of applicability of international law to the conflict. And that's a, uh, that's a that's a very crucial distinction because, like mm-hmm. so many so much information in just your recent articles at jeremyrhammond.com, I saw how time after time there's a vote at the UN in the General Assembly, if I recall, a number of votes where the vast majority of the nations of the world vote for something that would protect or First of all, honor the rights of the Palestinians, and just a handful of countries sh- vote no. Israel, yes. the United States, and sometimes a handful of others. Israel and the United States, the United States voting to deny people their rights. Once someone yes. wrapped, wraps their head about that, um, it's astounding. It's absolutely yes. astounding. And all our money and all the all the you know fear. And hatred that is is stirred up, you know, through uh, the spin and the propaganda of our so-called leaders and the spokespeople on all of our media, misrepresenting the history of the last 75, 76 years. With me is Jeremy R. Hammond, independent investigator and author. And here is important information from today's news talk, TNT. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. So I've got to ask myself, who am I going to believe? What I'm being told or my lying eyes? Of course, we had the big Tonga volcano go off a couple of years ago, and it actually blew a lot of water vapor into the air. But there's a whole bunch of volcanoes underwater in the Ring of Fire, which is to the east of Australia. Over the last month, there has been a phenomenal warming of the ocean temperatures to the east of Australia. This cannot be 
because of CO2. It can't be because of solar cycles. What could possibly be causing that to happen? This is so extreme because we're supposed to be in an El Nino, and in El Nino seasons, the water is supposed to be cold to the east of Australia. And yet we see this rapid warming. Now, I've become a bit of an outcast because of my stance on underwater volcanic activity. I've joined a merry group of people who seem to think the same as me, but nobody wants to give us a time of the day. In any case, if you take a look at what's actually going on, you have to ask yourself, well, if it isn't CO2, if it isn't the sun, what is it? This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Bruce de Torres on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. With me is Jeremy Hammond. Follow him at jeremyrhammond.com. You recently posted an article, the his A Brief History of Palestine from Canaan Through the Mandate Era, where folks can see some of your tremendous and deep research into this. Uh, Jeremy, based on what we've covered up to this minute, what's the next uh, point you would flush out, recap, or how would you uh, describe what's going on since October 7th? Yeah, it's just to, um, to kind of wrap up a point you made just before we went to the break. Um, you mentioned the the two uh, UN General Assembly resolutions, just to be specific, so so listeners know what, the, what we're referring to. Um, there's two uh, two resolutions that the General Assembly passes annually. Every year they put it, put it to a vote, and every year, um, as you mentioned, the vast majority of the, the member nations vote in favor, and Israel and the U.S. and, and a handful of others vote no. And so what those are, number one, there's a there's an annual reaffirmation of the two-state solution, um, that that the, the Palestinians have a right to self-determination, that uh, all of Gaza and the West Bank is occupied Palestinian territory under international law, including East Jerusalem, and that they have a right to a state of their own. Um, and so, of course, so if we want to know who are the rejectionists, it's clear it's Israel and the United States. Uh, the second of those is an annual, it's a very short resolution every year. It's just an annual reaffirmation of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination. Once again, you have the, uh, virtually the entire world against Israel and the United States and a, ha a handful of client states of the United States. <clears throat> and so it's very clear. If we want to know who, who, who are the rejectionists, it's right there in the record. Um, and so for anyone who, you know, is interested in learning the truth it's it's you can lift the thin veil of of deception and it's right there for everyone to see um go ahead go ahead no you okay so I, I made a point earlier about you know israeli concessions and so maybe come back to that real quick and just explain what i mean so we always hear that during the peace process that israel has made these generous concessions to the palestinians and the recalcitrant palestinians have always rejected these generous offers but this is all nonsense too because once again um, it, this is propaganda framed um, in the in, it's in the framework of what Israel wants. And so if Israel doesn't get all of the West Bank, then that's a concession, right? <laughs> in, in terms of what Israel wants and what the, the Zionists want. Um, and so but that's not the proper framework for discussion. The proper framework is what what are both parties entitled to? What do they have a right to? And under international law, Israel isn't entitled to a single inch of the West Bank. 
including East Jerusalem. And so nice. every one yeah. of these supposed concessions actually consisted of an ultimatum to the Palestinians to surrender even more of their land and more of their rights. And so we can just clear that whole um, nonsense up um, with that description. Um, so coming do, do, to... Do, seven, like, but mm -hmm. uh, Yes, but interject with this. Sure. Who beside, who beside, who do you follow and like to learn from? Who's a peer of yours in finding accurate analysis of the situation over there? Just because I'm just curious, who, who, who do you admire in terms of, and where, what other resource besides yourself might you steer us to? Well, there's a number of sources that, uh, you know, I've really, uh, relied on heavily and 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 very from very early on were very influential in my thinking number one is noam chomsky and his book fateful triangle is just phenomenal and actually when i wrote obstacle to peace i consciously kind of in a way picked up where that book left off um and so you know his noam chomsky's analyses have been very influential mm. uh norman finkelstein is another very just mm. you know his, his scholarly works on this are just incredible um, also, Israeli Israeli historians, um, Ilan Pape, mm -hmm. author of The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. There's also Benny Morris, who writes um, Israel, Israel. He's a preeminent is Israeli historian, but he writes about Israeli history through the lens of a, an ideological Zionist. So that's an interesting case. Um, and of course, him and uh, Ilan Pape um, go at it a lot. <laughs> they don't really like each other very much, it seems, because they have kind of because uh, Benny Morris, for people that don't know, he's he's, um, he's he's very well documented the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, and you know he has said things like, "Without the expulsion of seven hundred thousand Arabs, the the Jewish state could couldn't have come into existence. Therefore, it was necessary to expel them." But then he'll also at the same time try to deny that it was ethnic cleansing, and so he's got a lot of kind of self contradictions. Mm -hmm. So he's an interesting character, um, but you know his works are really um, very enlightening. Very um, you know, there's a lot to learn from from his books. Um, in it's important. Yeah, no, I, it was. I, well, thank you because you know, to to folks who are hearing me, this kind of thing for the first time, meeting you, seeing you for the very, very first time, it's so important for people to hear that there. This is substantiated. It's documented. It's a reality that is being hidden by the mainstream, and it's unconscionable to anyone who flatters themselves with the name of an American. I'm an American and I believe that people have rights. Well, our government is uh, brutalizing uh, people over there through its pr proxy partner, Israel. Yes, now please, October 7th, what's happening now? You're my, you know, and, and also, you know, was this a total surprise to you? Is this, is this, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back in your, in your tolerance of, uh, understanding how misled the world is and how brutal the regime in Israel can be. Yeah, it wasn't expected to me. I, you know, I didn't. Um, I was kind of shocked and surprised that that Hamas, um, you know, broke out of the Gaza concentration camp. And when I use the term concentration camp, I'm quoting um, the former National Security Council, uh, the head of Israel's former uh, former head of Israel's National Security Council, Gura Island, who in 2004 described Gaza as a huge concentration camp. So that was before you know the so-called blockade of Gaza in 2007, after Hamas won elections and the U.S. and Israel conspired to try to overthrow the elected government. Um, conspired with Fatah, which is the the party of um, uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, conspired to try to overthrow the the elected Hamas-led government. Uh, and when that failed, Israel implemented the 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 seventeen plus year siege 
of of Gaza. So before that, um, Gira Island had described Gaza as a huge concentration camp. And so, yeah, when, when Hamas um, terrorists broke out of the Gaza concentration camp, um, and some people have a problem with describing them as terrorists, but when you go and you, and you terrorize civilians, that's terrorism uh, by definition. And so I don't have a problem describing that as, as terrorism. Um, absolutely horrific. Uh, and with a caveat that we 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 now know that um, quite quite a number we don't know the numbers exactly, but certainly some, if not many, Israelis who died on ten seven were actually killed by IDF forces, um, mm -hmm. which appear to have implemented what they they just you know the Israeli government previously had described as the Hannibal Directive, where they were you know kill if they're sausages kill them along with with the militants. Um, to prevent them from being ca captured and taken taken alive as prisoners. Um, and so there was just indiscriminate fire from the IDF forces. That aside, it's very clear there were horrific atrocities perpetrated by Hamas terrorists against Israeli civilians. Nothing can possibly justify this. Nothing in in the 70 year, year his, 75 year history of Israel's systematic violation of Palestinians human right human rights um, can justify that. Uh, the same as, the 10-7 attacks don't justify what Israel has done in retaliation, which is to wage um, uh, wage a, a, a war. Well, I shouldn't call it a war. It's not a war, but to wage a military operation targeting the civilian population of Gaza um, with openly genocidal intent. And so, of course, nothing nothing can possibly justify what Israel has been doing to to the Palestinians in Gaza ever since 10-7. And talk about the, you know, the the case that just, uh, I think it was only on December 30th that South Africa uh, applied uh, and the court just ruled the other day, the international court. And, and what do you think that implies or foretells for any impact that might have, that ruling? Yeah. Yeah. So I applaud the government of South Africa for stepping up and uh, meeting its obligations under the Genocide Convention, because the Genocide Convention does not just prohibit states from engaging in acts of genocide. It actually requires member states, parties to the to the convention to act to prevent the crime of genocide. And so South Africa is fulfilling its obligation in that regard by stepping up and filing an application with the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, um, accusing Israel of, of violating the, the the convention of committing acts of genocide. Um, this is a, a, a huge, um, you know, obviously it's a huge deal. Um, it's a very big issue. Uh, I really applaud the government for doing that, the government of South Africa. And so in the meantime, the, the, South Africa has asked the ICJ to issue um, provisional measures. So that was its first request because, you know, the, the, the argument being like, we can't wait for the ICJ to deliberate and come to some kind of um, judgment about is Israel committing genocide or not? Is it violating the, the, the convention or not? You know, that's a long legal process. The Palestinians don't have time for that. Like they need something done now to stop this. And so South Africa asked the ICJ to intervene with provisional measures. South Africa requested uh, a complete cessation of hostilities. The ICJ just yesterday uh, didn't didn't go that far. They didn't call on Israel to uh, to suspend its military operation altogether, which I didn't anticipate that it would. However, it, you know, it was a very very um, 
a monumental decision that was put out yesterday because the ICJ did comply with South Africa's request for provisional measures. And essentially what the ICJ did was to call on Israel to, to comply with its obligations as a member of the, as a party to the Genocide Convention and to report on the steps that it's taken to comply with the Genocide Convention. And this includes things, for example, such as, you know, holding people accountable who have incited genocide. Well, because the, um, the, is the one of the main provisions of the ruling yesterday that the court found, yes, indeed, Israel's committing genocide. No, they didn't do that because that's, that is what the proceeding will continue to do. So the question before the court mm. is, is Israel com committing genocide? So they didn't, Thank they you. didn't, they didn't issue that judgment. That judgment has yet to be, those deliberations will be had. So this is just provisional measure. What they found, what the court found was that there, there they, that there's a plausible case that Israel is committing genocide, essentially. So they didn't say, then, yes, yeah. Israel is committing genocide. Yes, Israel has violated the convention. So what the court, um, what the court decided was that South Africa has presented a reasonable case, mm -hmm. a very well factual argued case, that there's a mm -hmm. plausible case that Israel is in violation of the convention, and therefore, um, Israel is required to take these provisional measures to demonstrate its its commitment to uh, uh, to fulfilling its obligations under the uh, the convention. And so, did they you didn't say go what, that far, did you, but it's still, did you it's say still what, a very important decision. Did you say what those measures were? If so, would you repeat them? Um, I don't. I don't recall specifically what they all are. Okay. But number one, you know, it's, it's ceasing yeah. targeting. You know, obviously, no more indiscriminate attacks on on civilians. Um, no uh -huh. more blockade. You know, stop blocking humanitarian aid. Allowing the humanitarian aid at the levels right. that are required to meet the the population's uh, um, needs, um, which of course is not happening. Israel has already openly defied the, the ICJ in, in saying that we're just going to continue what we've been doing. Um, which isn't going to help its case in the long run as this case continues at the ICJ. Uh, but, you know, the, the measures like these, you know, you can't indiscriminately target the civilian population. You, you you can't block humanitarian aid. You need to allow these things in. And you need to hold people accountable who have, have um, incited genocide, which includes high-level Israeli officials. Um, and is, so, the, is, the, is the court's ruling yesterday or announcement, pronouncement, going to what will that what do you think that's going to cause over the next week 10 days two weeks does it have what kind of influence what what kind of repercussions at all do they have any teeth in in leveraging up ramping up any more pressure on israel about what they just recommended or decreed israel is obligated to comply with no the icj's rulings you know the icj is the body that issues advisory opinions essentially so it's its rulings are authoritative it's the highest law of the land you know the highest um the highest authority in the land in terms of you know interpreting international law what does international law mean so it's mm -hmm. very authoritative in its judgments but it doesn't have any ability to uh enforce its rulings but that's where the security u.n security council comes in the u.n security council could could pass a resolution um you know endorsing the icj's provisional measures calling on israel and that this would be legally binding on israel to to uh you know anything from the security council is, is mm -hmm. legally binding on member nations it also could put pressure on the icc a different body at the hague the international criminal court to um to advance prosecutions uh and investigations for war crimes committed by both hamas and the israeli government um, and so this could put pressure on the ICC. It also puts incredible pressure on the United States, which is just increasingly isolated internationally because of its 
complicity in Israel's genocide and its war crimes in Gaza, including well, you know use of including use of its veto at the Security Council and so on. Thank you. Um, in our last few minutes here, what would you what would you advise Americans and uh, to do or to follow along? You know that could be of a helpful nature. I guess just get the truth out about the reality of the situation and really try to shake off decades of propaganda. Propaganda, but also squeeze in your thoughts about the candidacy of Bobby Kennedy Jr., who was to me, 100% impressive in his analysis of America and the world's problems and his proposed solutions, except for his blind uh, swallowing and espousing of the uh, mainstream uh, praise and, and support of what Israel's doing over there. Yeah, it's very disappointing to me um, personally. Um, you know, Bobby Kennedy had written the, the foreword to my book, The War on Informed Consent. We developed a collaborative relationship. Uh, I've never been an employee of Children's Self Defense, but I have done, you know, um, independent uh, freelance work for them, <clears throat> um, written articles for them, and so on. I wrote, wrote an ebook for Children's Health Defense. Um, and yeah, I, I was very openly supportive of his candidacy early on, right from the, the time he announced it in, in April of last year. Um, but I had to publicly withdraw my support for his candidacy as a result of his just open vocal support for Israel's war crimes in Gaza. It's very disappointing. I don't quite understand it, to be honest with you. Um, but he, when he he talks, as, I mean, he might as well be an, a spokesperson for the IDF, the way he speaks. Um, he He's, yeah. you know, it's just he re, re, repeats Parrot's Zionist propaganda talking points. Um, it's very misinformative. He's he's filled with it. He's certain He's a yeah. he's a very very strong uh, you know advocate for his beliefs decades as a as a winning you know attorney it's most disconcerting um, I want to mention in our dwindling you know minute here another article about questioning uh, should medical licensing be abolished that's a December fourteenth article at Jeremy R Hammond dot com. Um, Indulge Inter your interview. thoughts. Um, yeah. I did. Yeah, that was, that was an interview. A summary of an interview. I had a summary yeah. of, that, of the interview, yes. Well, to talk about your concerns along those lines, Jeremy, in our, in our final minute here. Sure. Yeah, so it's a great discussion. I encourage people to go to my site and listen to that and, and, and read the bullet point summary. Um, so, you know, medical licensing is essentially a, a, a method of, you know, it doesn't protect, number one, it doesn't do what we think it does. It doesn't protect um, the public and it doesn't protect consumers. Um, the, the purpose is essentially to establish a medical monopoly um, where we have this, you know, what's quote, quote unquote standard of care, but it's very farmer centric. It's very, you know, it's 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 very industry driven um, and and it, 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 it should be abolished, in my opinion, because it's used to um, to really limit care and it increases costs. It, 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 re it reduces the supply of physicians and doctors. Je Jeremy R. Hammond, blowing my mind. Can't wait to get into the world of that research. Yet another giant thing we assume, oh, their licensing is, is to protect us. JeremyRHammond.com, thank you. Here on today's News Talk, TNT. TNT.